This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today, I'm going to dig into a topic that is pretty interesting to a lot of people. I'll talk about a biblical attitude toward money. I've given this talk in quite a few different cultures, and I tell you, it really catches people's attention. But before we get into a discussion about money, I'd like to remind you that if you have any questions for me, any thoughts, anything you'd like to share with me, any topics that you'd like me to talk about, please send me a note at ancientpaths at cantrell.cc. As a matter of fact, part of this talk is going to be covering something that a listener asked me to talk about quite a while ago. How does a Christian in a wealthy culture think about giving? And that will be in a later episode when I address this question of giving. Also, I want to give full credit to David Pawson, the British Bible teacher. I've mentioned him multiple times here on the podcast. I took extensive notes on his teaching, and so you'll hear many of his thoughts, really. And I've added in some of my own stories and other thoughts as well, but I must give David Pawson credit. Well, that was sort of an introduction, but before I really get into talking about money, I came across a few quotes that I thought were very interesting and I want to share with you. Part of my walk with the Lord is hearing something that's very wise and it just sinks deep into me, makes me think about it. And of course, the wisdom of the scriptures is the highest priority, and there are also believers who I look to for just good advice, wisdom, words of wisdom. I was listening to the Elizabeth Elliot podcast the other day. For those of you who don't know, I volunteer as the technical media director for the Elizabeth Elliot Foundation. And that means that I am responsible for all of the media that's on the website the audio recordings and podcasts and her radio programs, please visit elizabethelliot.org. That's an S in Elizabeth and two L's in Elliot, elizabethelliot.org. We have hundreds of her long talks, you know, 45 minutes or an hour long talks, plus, I don't know, maybe 1,500 or 2,000 of her daily radio programs that she did, Gateway to Joy. We've also created the Gateway to Joy podcast, which is released weekly, and each episode includes two of her daily radio programs, plus comments from people that worked with Elizabeth and knew her or influenced by her. I strongly encourage you to go and subscribe. We also have a YouTube channel with lots of videos, and the podcast episodes are there as well. Just look up Elizabeth Elliott on YouTube. So the other day, Elizabeth quoted Oswald Chambers. She did a sort of a rough quote, and I went and I dug up what he actually wrote. And for those of you who don't know, Oswald Chambers wrote My Utmost for His Highest, a very well-known devotional. I encourage you to get a hold of that, too. It's really good for daily devotions. And here's the quote. There are certain things that we must not pray about. Moods, for instance. Moods never go by praying. Moods go by kicking. (laughs) 
she quoted him and said she really liked the fact that he was just so straightforward and blunt. And of course, those of us who know her and her teachings know that she was also very straightforward, didn't play around when talking about the truth. She really would speak bluntly. And this really stood out to me. There are certain things we must not pray about. Moods, for instance. Moods never go by praying. Moods go by kicking. I I love it. It's really good. It's a little shocking to say there are certain things we must not pray about. But then, yeah, our moods come and go. Uh, David Pawson actually one time said if you were to judge his Christian walk by his moods, he would not be a Christian on Monday mornings. So let's keep that in mind. Moods never go by praying. They go by kicking. We can't pray them out. we got to kick them out. So when you find yourself feeling moody and uh, grumpy and uh, whatever, overwhelmed, just kick it out. Take control over it. Here's another one by Oswald Chambers. And actually, after I started looking through different quotes, I think I may start a a mini-series within the podcast on quotes and just talking about quotes that other believers have made. Uh, This is a good one from Oswald Chambers. Quote, The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. That's really good. There are a lot of Christians today who honestly do not fear God. They love God. They think about the love of God but they don't think about the severity of God, which Paul mentions in the book of Romans, the goodness and the severity of God. And we have to have that holy fear. And honestly, it's not just a reverential awe. It's actually realizing that God is a consuming fire. He shows no favoritism. He loves people very much, but also he is the king of all creation, and he demands perfection. And the remarkable thing, to quote Oswald Chambers again, about God is that when you fear him, you fear nothing else. And whereas if you don't fear God, you fear everything else. I also found a quote by D.L. Moody. And this one struck me too. I, I travel so much around the world and I speak at so many different churches and so many different cultures. And I speak with people who are ministering in those cultures as local believers, but also as missionaries. And this is something that Moody said, quote, Christians should live in the world, but not be filled with it. A ship lives in the water, but if the water gets into the ship, it goes to the bottom. And so Christians may live in the world, but if the world gets into them, they sink, end quote. That's really good. We need to be in the world, but not of it. We need to live in the world, but not be filled with it. And I tell you, we live in a time where the world is pumping filth into the minds of people. And that comes through uh, movies and through social media and through music and television shows and films. Unlike any other time in the history of the world, probably the last 150 years, the world has had the ability to just pump garbage into people. It's just an endless stream of ungodliness. My grandfather was born in the late 1800s. Well, he never heard a recording until he was, oh, I don't know, maybe 20. He had never heard recorded music. And a guy came through town with a 
tent and a little record player that played these cylinder records. And my grandfather went and paid a nickel to go in that tent and listen to the recording on this little record player. He'd never heard anything like that. So the world is always there, but we have to guard our hearts. We have to guard our eyes. We have to guard our ears. Because the ability of ungodliness to pervade right now is so strong. It is so strong. Even movies that we may enjoy and we think they're neutral, they're not really neutral. Movies are created by people. And when you see a movie, you're looking at the world through the eyes of the people who created that movie. They've chosen every word that's there. They've chosen everything that you see. And 99% or more of this is created by non-Christians. And that stuff gets pumped into us, and we begin to think that that's reality, that that worldview is reality. So, again, to quote D.L. Moody, Christians should live in the world but not be filled with it. A ship lives in the water, but if the water gets into the ship, then it goes to the bottom. And so Christians may live in the world, but if the world gets into them, they sink. Amen. Okay, enough of the quotes. I could go on and on and on. I found several that are just really wonderful. So I'll come back to those later. All right, so now let's look at a biblical attitude towards money. And again, I'll give credit to David Pawson. He had a word for people who would take his teachings and then uh, just go through them basically in the order in which he did. He called them impersonators. <laughs> so I'm a, an impersonator of David Pawson to large extent here. Now, the purpose of this teaching on money is discipleship. I must emphasize that. The purpose of any teaching should be discipleship, to help us to grow closer to the Lord, to teach us to obey what he's commanded and put into practice what he's commanded, and to have the mind of God. That is the purpose of teaching. The devil knows that Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't put his teachings into practice. He doesn't submit himself. Demons know that Jesus paid the price for the sins of the world, but they don't follow him. So it's not enough to know these things. We have to do them. We have to put them into practice. And anyone who's been listening to this podcast knows that's an important theme of what I've shared. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, Go and teach people to do all that I have commanded you. He didn't tell us to teach people what he commanded. He said, we got to teach people to do it. Put it into practice. Now, the Bible has implications. The teachings that we find in the Bible affect this life and the next life, the life to come. And Jesus spent so much of his ministry on earth talking about the kingdom and this world to come, using imagery and events in this world, but preparing us for the next world. And God's teaching about money, it also has implications and prepares us, not only for this life, but also for the next life. I'm not sure how many episodes I'll give to this talking about money. This may be the first of three or four, perhaps five. There's so much that God has to say about money, and it prepares us for living as believers in this world, and it prepares us for the world to come. I'll start with a couple of stories, uh, one I've shared before, I think, but it was a while ago here, and the other one I don't think I've shared. So I'll begin with these two stories about how Christians have thought about money. Many years ago, well, I don't know, 25 years ago, probably, 
our church here, the church that we attend in St. Petersburg, Russia, and the pastor fell into sin and left under pretty bad circumstances. And the local leadership met to appoint a new pastor. The church at the time was supported financially by a pretty big and wealthy church in the United States, in the state of California. And the pastor of that church didn't come here very often, wasn't terribly involved in the daily life of the church here, but there was a long-standing relationship there. Well, when the pastor left under bad circumstances, the local leadership here in Russia met, and they prayed, and they appointed a man to be the pastor. And the pastor of the church in America heard about it, and he was not happy at all. He thought that he should appoint who was going to be the next pastor. So he flew from California over to Russia, and he called a meeting of all the leadership together. And the American pastor was instructing the local church what they should do against their sense of God's leading. He was going to appoint his own guy, even though the elders, the leadership of the church, had prayed and had asked another man to serve. So then he asked this question to the leadership when they had this meeting where he was kicking out the pastor that had been appointed and installing his own guy. He asked this question. He asked if they knew the golden rule. Most cultures call it the golden rule in their own languages. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And he said, do you know what the golden rule is? And of course, all the elders were like, well, yeah, yeah, we do. And then he said this to them. He who has the gold rules. That's what the American pastor said to the local believers. You know what the golden rule is? He who has the gold rules. Now, I can't think of anything less biblical and less godly to say in a circumstance like that. That devastated the local leadership, and it devastated the man who was being kicked out. And to have a pastor come in and say, because I'm giving you money, I rule over you. Oh boy, really, really shocking, but that's the way a lot of Christians think about money. Honestly, a lot of Americans think that way about money, and we're going to talk about that. Another story is something that I read when I was reading about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't know who he is, he was a pastor in Nazi Germany who ran an illegal seminary under the Nazis, and he wrote a lot of books, and he was very influential to me as a young believer especially his book, The Cost of Discipleship. If you haven't read any of his work, I encourage you to go find it and dig into it. It's really, really good. Uh, So he was leading this illegal seminary, and he invited all of the students to go for an evening of a music concert and a meal in the city. They were outside of a city. So they all took a train into the city and went to a concert and then went out and had some dinner. And this was Bonhoeffer and several of the students. And when they were walking home after getting off the train, one of the students remarked that it must have cost a lot of money to purchase their train tickets home and the tickets for the concert. And Bonhoeffer turned to the student and said, Money is dirt. That's what he said. Money is dirt. Well, there are two different ways to think about money, huh? He who has the gold rules or money is dirt. Well, let's talk about that. First of all, it's important to realize that money was not invented by God. It's a human invention. People came up with that. (laughs) There wasn't money in the Garden of Eden. Money is a human invention. 
Money is basically a convenience. And I think that's why it was invented. Before there was money, people would barter. So if I had some extra eggs and you had some extra meat, we could exchange eggs for meat and we would barter. If somebody has a surplus of one thing, like a surplus of butter, and then somebody has a surplus of uh, vegetables, well, then you could exchange the extra that you had, and that's bartering. But of course, if you're bartering meat and you go to the market, you don't want to carry a cow with you and exchange that for different things. So money is a convenience. It makes it convenient to have this thing of value that's in your pocket that you can exchange for goods or services. And money is easier to accumulate. Not only is it a convenience, it's easy to get it. It's hard to accumulate cows and carry them in your wallet. (laughs) Hard to accumulate a bunch of eggs and keep them for a few years. Money is easy to accumulate. But there's a problem there that when we save up things on this earth, well, Jesus says that moth and rust destroy them. Everything in this world decays, and everything that we have is going to disappear. All the money that you have right now, it's all going to disappear. It'll all belong to somebody else or just rot and fall away. Another thing about money is that it's power. It has power in this world. It really does have power. There's a saying in English, money talks. It's powerful. We've seen how money can corrupt people. Even the desire for money can corrupt people. And money talks. One thing that Paulson says, it's absolutely necessary that Christians who handle money make it speak a Christian language. (laughs) Money talks, but let's make it speak a Christian language. Amen. It's been said, give me your bank accounts for the past few years and I'll tell you what kind of Christian you are. It is a test of how we are walking with the Lord, our love of God, how we manage our money, whether it be in large amounts or small amounts. uh, It does have influence, and how we handle those things is a mark of our discipleship. Now, there are two extreme attitudes toward money, and both of these are wrong. And actually, I think I held both of them (laughs) at different times as I thought differently about money and uh, my response to having money or not having money. The first extreme attitude that's actually wrong is money is evil. And people will quote a saying, money is the root of all evil. But that's actually not what the Bible says. We'll come to it. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 6. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of it that is the root of lots of problems in the world. But money itself is not the root of evil. And some people throughout history have felt that if we just got rid of money, well then selfishness would disappear, sin, all the problems in the world would go away if we just got rid of money. I live in Russia, and Marx and Lenin and the communists, that was one of their aspects of their faith, really, was that capital, money, had to go, that it was the root of evil in the world. But Aristotle also felt that way, that if we could get rid of private property and money, well, everything would be okay. Everything would be all right. 
So this attitude that money is evil, that's not right. That's not true. Well, on the other side of these two extremes is this idea that money is good. Yeah, that it actually is morally good, money is. And it's, it's actually morally good to get as much money as you can. It's like really good to make a lot of money, and therefore it's bad not to have much money. In Hosea 12, 8, God is talking about the Israelites and how they have turned from him. And there's a quote there that epitomizes the way a lot of people think about how money is good. In Hosea 12, 8, Ephraim says, I am very rich. I've become wealthy. With all my wealth, they will not find in me any iniquity or sin. Boy, that is a worldly attitude. People who have a lot of money, they think, well, I'm wealthy. I must be better than everybody else. There's no sin in me. God's blessing me. I must be better than everyone around me. And I shared this. I actually spoke on this in Romania not too long ago, and I shared a story I think I may have mentioned it here. In the United States, I won't mention his name, but there's a man who owns a business, and he's a billionaire, and he's a Christian. And I don't know him personally. I imagine he's a really good guy. He's often invited to speak at conferences. He's become well-known as a Christian speaker in big international conferences. And as far as I can tell, the only reason that he's been invited to talk at these conferences is because he's a billionaire, People think, well, he must be a better Christian than me because he's really rich. And I remember several years ago uh, when I read about him talking at a conference and wasn't terribly impressed with what I heard him say, what I read that he had said at this conference. At the time, there was a missionary here who was about 70 years old, and since then he's passed away. He lived here for years, and he got cancer, and he had to go to the States, and he died of cancer in a little mobile home that somebody gave him on a piece of property they have in in Florida. Uh, He didn't tell anybody that he had cancer because he didn't want to be a bother to people. He was always praying for us and sending us notes and just a solid believer who was so humble and poor. He was impoverished. He lived the heart of his life for the gospel and he never made any money and didn't own anything. I guess he owned his clothing when he died. And I thought, you know, that guy should be the one talking at conferences. He may not be a good speaker, but he should be the one having influence, not the rich guy. So people think money's good, or if you have money, it's a sign that you're good. But money is neither good nor evil. It's not. You can't take the amount of money that a person has as proof of a person's virtue or his sin. Well, in Luke 8, we see that Jesus was dependent on the financial support of people who traveled with him, mostly women. And Jesus never said that wealth was bad in and of itself. Now, the next section I have uh, comes from David Pawson, and this is Words for a Consumerist Society. And I realized after I gave this talk in Africa, down in a poor country, a poor part of the world, I needed to create a section for the Cash Poor Society. So first I'll share here uh, thoughts for a consumerist society, what is often called the first world. So the idea is to get rich and to spend it. These consumer societies, so much of the pressure of the culture is to make a bunch of money and then spend it 
on toys. He who dies with the most toys wins, is the idea. And this consumerist society, it's geared, actually, to make us spend more than we have coming in. It's built to make us go into debt. There's a tremendous pressure to spend more than our income. And advertising encourages us to to buy things that we don't really need but we want, or they'll even tell us that we ought to want these things, even if we didn't know they existed. And the way that you go to a shop at the checkout line, they put all these little things, all the candies at eye level for the children, <laughs> just to tempt people in to buy things that they don't need and, and things that they didn't want until they sat there and were seduced by what they're seeing. And the advertising industry is probably not a very easy industry to be in for a believer because, as Paulson says, at the heart of the advertising industry is the manipulation of human desire. The most creative people in the culture now are often in advertising, and they're good at manipulating us, and it's easy to fall into these temptations. And we're manipulated in stores, on TV, billboards, movies, product placement, like I said, putting candy at the eye level of children. I don't think I've shared this, but I read about a study that was done quite a while ago. It was in a a grocery store in the wine section of this store. And on some days they played Spanish music, and on some days they played French music in the wine section of the store. And then they tracked the purchases. And on the days that they played Spanish music, they sold more Spanish wine. And on the days that they played French music, they sold more French wine. It wasn't a huge amount, but you could see that there was a correlation there, which I guess is not really a surprise to those of us who know about these things. But the main point that I got out of this article was when they interviewed people after the purchase, they asked, did the music affect your choice on your purchase? And 100% said, no, but it did. And we are affected by this. I was sitting in a pizza shop in the United States a while ago. It was pretty full. There were a bunch of people around, families eating, kids there, and I was listening to the music. It was just pop music playing, and I started listening, and it was a song that was very popular a long time ago, and they're still playing it all over the place. I think it's, I don't know what the title of it is, but Let's Get Physical. The lyric is Let's Get Physical. Let's Get Horizontal. (laughs) It's pop music, and everybody's sitting there, and I thought, man, all these kids have got this message going into their brains while they're sitting here eating pizza. It's so important to get physical, to get horizontal, to engage in sexual activity. And that's what's being pumped into this little pizza shop. It's a manipulation of customers, and we've gotten used to it. And it's really easy to be ensnared by this consumer culture that's all around us. And many people live beyond their income. Uh, Right now, the United States of America lives way beyond its income. And a lot of people spend more money than they've got, and they spend money before they've gotten it. And this depends on an assumption that money is going to continue to come in as it always has. But we can look at history and see that's not true. There are times when the economy goes down and people have less money coming in. People borrow a bunch of money to buy a house and then the economy changes and they can't 
pay on that loan and then they have to walk away from their house. That happens often. And when we spend money before we've even gotten it, we're borrowing from our children. (laughs) That's what's happening in the United States and many Western cultures, probably many cultures around the world that are running deficits. You're basically borrowing from the next generations without even asking their consent. (laughs) That's a national debt. It's going to have to be repaid by future generations or there's going to be a price to pay. Uh, Here in Russia, I've seen runs on banks. Different governments have locked down bank accounts, not allowing people to have access to their funds. And people want to be better off all the time. And they want to have a steadily increasing standard of living. But boy, when that crash comes, it'll tear a nation apart. Some people want to keep on borrowing and some want to reduce the national debt. That's been a conversation that's been happening. But there is a price to pay. We just can't keep borrowing. This is the consumerist society. Well, I made some thoughts for cash-poor society. Uh, And I visit countries, even countries in Europe, where there are a lot of really, really poor people. And there is a saying that I think, if I may say this, ought to be in the Bible, but isn't. (laughs) It's very wise. And I don't know where I've heard it. You've probably heard it too, but here it is. Comparison is the thief of joy. People that live in cash-poor societies watch movies and television from other countries, and those will show how other people live. But movies and TV shows, they show an unreal life. They're not showing the truth. But there can be a great temptation to compare our living standards with other people in other cultures. And comparison is the thief of joy. Watching a movie or a TV show or a TikTok video or whatever is like watching a pretend world through the eye of one person. And usually that person who creates that content or those videos, they don't know the Lord. They're going to show a world that does not admit that God exists. And if we compare ourselves with that fake world, it'll steal our joy. And this comparison can make us think that the only true happiness would come from wealth and money and having money and keeping money and using money to make our lives better. And this is where the joy is stolen. It leads to discontentment, being unsatisfied with the life that God has given you. We compare ourselves to others or even to this other person that we want to be. So we're not comparing ourselves to something that we're seeing. We're comparing ourselves to where we would like to be. If we only had this or that thing, like a car or a motorcycle or a big house, then we'd be happier. That's that comparison. If we only had this. And there's a problem. In cash-poor societies, we can look to people who have money as our saviors. Our eyes can turn to people rather than to God. Many years ago, there were missionaries that came to visit an orphanage here in Russia. And they said this classic thing that uh, people will say in these circumstances when they talk about Jesus, but they don't mention Jesus. They say, would you like to have a friend who is always there for you? And whenever you have a need, he'll provide everything that you want. All you have to do is ask and you'll get what you need. And the orphan said, oh, well, we've got that. (laughs) And the missionaries are like, what? And they said, yeah, the Americans, if we need anything, we just ask them and they give it to us. Well, there's a couple of lessons there. 
Jesus isn't just an ATM, a cash dispensing machine who conforms to our desires. And here's the problem with these orphans is that by the actions of these well-meaning Christians, their eyes had been turned to people rather than to God. So these comparisons and this lack of contentment can lead to this result of despair because often there really isn't a way to change the circumstances. And people can despair, give up hope. Another result is helplessness. You think, boy, if I only had money, then I could be active in the world. I could do things that mean things, but I'm helpless. And there's nothing I can do about it. So you have despair and helplessness and also fear. If you're able to work physically and mentally, if you're able to work with your hands and your head, but you live in a corrupt society, that'll beat you down. And there can be real fear I want to do well, I want to work well, but all these forces are against me, and it can lead us to what's called learned helplessness. I'll talk about that sometime later, I think, but fear can come in. And then there's no hope. So we have despair, hopelessness, fear, this lack of hope for positive change, and then there can be a loss of faith for Christians because there's this false teaching that If God really loved me, he'd give me everything I want. And God is not giving me the things that I want, and so I'm not going to believe in him. There can be a loss of faith. If you're in a society where most people are poor, and then you come into money, then pride is very close to the door. These results are despair, hopelessness, loss of faith, fear, pride, if you get money. Because if you get money and your friends don't have money, you can think, well, I'm better than people around me. And the people around you may resent you having money and try to tear you down. Now, behind all of this, behind all of what I've said, is the big lie. And that lie is, the secret of happiness is money. The lie is that money will provide what we want. Freedom, security, power, respect, goods. That's the big lie, that the secret of happiness is found in money. So, as we continue in future episodes, I'm going to talk about four aspects of money. And this comes from David Pawson. I'll talk about getting money, how to get it. I'll talk about having money, keeping it. I'll talk about spending money, how to use it. And I'll talk about giving money. And the Bible has a lot to say about all of these things. A lot. As a matter of fact, it's one of the topics that Jesus spoke most about. I think he spoke about money more than he spoke about hell. So as we close, friends, remember that there is a big lie out there in the world. And that lie is, the secret of happiness is money. Don't give in to that lie. It's not true. It's not true at all. And until the next time, my friends, I pray that you'll hear the voice of God and you'll put into practice the things that he's telling you. I pray that he'll give you wisdom and discernment, courage and faith. Because when we walk in God's ways, there is always rest for the soul. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all.